0: Why is that nagging addiction not going away? And why does following Jesus feel like an uphill both ways through two feet of snow type of journey with only one boot? Why? Well, this morning I'd like to say this the Bible seems to provide a compelling answer. We are at war, we are in a battle. We and every human being, past, present, and future until the return of Jesus Christ when he sets all things to rights and finally gets the hell out of earth, are born into a struggle. What I'm getting at here this morning, bear with me, is spiritual warfare. Now I realize there's a large potential I've lost half of you already. Things of this nature seem to be especially divisive, but stay with me, please, guys. Spiritual warfare is a present reality in our war torn world. There are real principalities and powers, often unseen, which influence and distort what is true about God and His creation. These spiritual beings want want to drag every good and beautiful thing that God has created back into non existence. We are at war. The kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of evil, good versus evil. And in this war, there is no middle ground. The New Testament writers make it clear that we cannot be dual citizens in this, this battle. We are either in the kingdom of darkness or we're in the kingdom of light. We're in the kingdom of Jesus or we're in the kingdom of the, in, of the enemy. There is no in-between place. But let's just get a little bit more specific. The apostle Paul says this, the battle that we're talking about this morning, spiritual warfare is not a battle against flesh and blood but it's against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So today's text that Jillian just read us is an example of Jesus engaging in spiritual warfare. Jesus' kingdom pushing back the kingdom of darkness. It's a really weird story. (laughs) Let's just get that out there. But with that, my goal today is really simple. I want us to think about what story Jesus was living out, living out of when he encountered the the demoniacs, the story we just read. And what does this tell us about Jesus? And what does this tell us about the world? Okay? So we're going to talk about VCRs. We're going to talk about uppercase and lowercase Gs. We're going to watch a Bible project video. We're going to read a psalm. And we're going to end with our text. Okay? So, warning this may feel a little bit like a lecture compared to normal, um, but I'm hoping in the end, our minds will be will be blown by the powerful goodness of our God. So again, I, this is the second time I've asked this, just hang in there with me, okay, please. Would you guys pray with me? Um, due to this morning's uh, topic, I'm going to ask you to pray with me, um, pray for me, because there is a real spiritual battle that's happening. Even part of preaching is preaching to the principalities and powers, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we want to acknowledge that there is a spiritual battle even happening right now. We're not afraid. Greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. But we want to also declare authoritatively that Jesus Christ is Lord here. So just pray with me and then we'll get into this text together, okay? So come Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign over all creation. You are the creator of everything. And so, Lord, this morning we ask that, that Jesus, you would have your way here. We declare that Jesus Christ is Lord here in this place. We bind the enemy in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray for clear minds. We pray for open hearts. We pray that the gospel of Jesus would go forth with power and with authority, that he would be lifted up and magnified, that everyone that leaves this room would be saying the name of Jesus and not any other name when we leave. So, We thank you, Lord, for this time together. We thank you that you knew this day would come. You knew this conversation would happen. And we just ask you to have your way, Lord. You are good. You are gracious. You are mighty. And we look to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. When I was a kid, we had a VCR and a TV with a VCR in it. And some of you in this room might not know what a VCR is. This is a VCR. It's it's an upgraded one. We didn't have one this nice. One of the few tapes we had when I was a kid was a season of the animated show Scooby-Doo. And this show was about this these four teenagers, uh, Fred, Daphne, Velma, and Shaggy, and their dog Scooby. And they solved mysteries uh, often involving supernatural creatures through a series of oh, funny missteps and antics. You know, you've seen it, I'm sure. Oh, okay. It's not worth watching. But anyways, it was It was one of those shows that always ended up the exact same way. There was a ghost, the teenage sleuths and their scared but reliable dog Scooby-Doo would chase this ghost, and by the end of the show, they would unmask said ghost to reveal that it was just some villain going about doing questionable deeds dressed up as a ghost. So this worldview that Scooby-Doo taught me on this VCR that I had as a child was behind every seemingly supernatural event, there's a natural explanation. Just pull the mask off the dude and it's just a guy. The supernatural doesn't really interact with the spiritual, you could say. That's the worldview that scooby taught me. But according to the Bible, it turns out that Scooby-Doo is wrong. And that's all I got to say today is uh, Scooby-Doo is wrong. Uh, but again, we're not here to discuss cartoons from the late 60s and early 70s. We're doing our best to think about and get to know Jesus and to learn to see the world the way that he does. We are his disciples, we want to think the way that he thinks. So we want this to shape and form our everything. So the question is really this, what did Jesus think about the supernatural or the spiritual world? Jesus Christ grew up reading the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew Bible. So a collection of different scriptures, uh, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. And so his worldview was shaped by the story of Yahweh, which begins like this, the very first lines of the Bible. Anyone know what they are? In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew word translated here as God is the word Elohim. This is not a name, this is a category, okay? So an Elohim is an invisible but real spiritual creature. So the Bible is claiming, right off the beginning, right off the hop, is that there is an invisible but real spiritual being, one Elohim that is above all other Elohim. Yahweh, the one true creator, sustainer, and giver of life, which overflowed from the Trinitarian love experienced and shared by the Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity. Elohim is a category. Yahweh is the supreme Elohim, creator of all. Yahweh is the name of God revealed to Moses in this incredible encounter recorded in the 34th chapter of Exodus. Moses asked God to show him his glory. What do you really like? I want to know you, God. Show me who you are. And Yahweh tells him his name. And one of the most interesting bits of this encounter is that Yahweh repeats his name. And this is for a very specific reason. So let, let's just, let me use this as an example. So imagine this scenario. After the service today, you're out in the back hanging out. And all of a sudden, this kid runs in, he falls down, and he trips, and he scrapes his knee. And he's like, I need my mom, my mom. And you don't know this kid from Adam, so you're like, Who, tell me more about your mom. What is your mom like? Because there are more than one mom in this room, right? You can just go, and someone needs their mom. And every mom is like, you know? So there, 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 there's a lot of moms here. Um, and so you go over to, and you ask the help. So tell me what your mom is like. You don't know this child, but you're trying to get to know them. What, is, what does your mom look like? And, and you ask these questions to get to know more than just the category of mom. Who is the person we're looking for? So it's the same thing here. Yahweh is distinguishing himself amongst a, a world that exists where there's a bunch of Elohim. So he's saying, I, I am a different Elohim than the rest of the Elohim here. I am Yahweh. So Yahweh is, one way to think about it is this. Yahweh is capital G God among the lowercase g gods. Again, that word Elohim could be translated as gods. He is the chief spiritual being. He is distinguishing himself from the rest of the spiritual world. Some of you are already like, what is going on here, Tom? But let's just, let's just think about it again. Really, really quick summary. Yahweh Elohim is uncreated and unparalleled. He is the creator, the sustainer of all things. He has not a rival or equal. He is high above all else. Equally, in this spiritual world, there are lowercase g gods that are very real but invisible creatures. And all of these are created by Yahweh. They are beneath Yahweh. Yes, Trachan. So if this language is making you uncomfortable, God and gods, I understand it. Here are some of the other terms that are used in scripture that convey the participants in the spiritual realm. Heavenly beings. Sons of God, sons of the Most High, cherubim, seraphim, angels, demons, princes, lords, powers, principalities, rulers, authorities, spiritual forces of evil, powers of this dark world, and evil spirits. This is the point I'm trying to make. The spiritual world is real, and the spiritual world interacts with the natural world more than we realize. There is a supernatural sphere with supernatural beings and they interact with our world. And chief among those spiritual beings is Yahweh. John Thompson wrote a really brilliant book I'd recommend called Deliverance. And he's talking about this idea of the spiritual world this way. You are a complex human being. You're made up of body and soul, yet you are one person. This is the biblical worldview. First, that you and I are physical and spiritual all at once. And second, that the universe is populated with sentient beings who interact with each other, not just laws that run the place. The Bible declares there is a God, the ultimate sentient being, who is the author and creator of all, and who continually sustains the universe and, and interferes with it according to his will. The Bible further depicts the world as full of angels, demons, and human beings who regularly interact with each other within the universe that God has created. What we read in the scriptures too, we won't go into into so much detail, is that it would appear that just like humans, spiritual beings have authority and the ability to choose or free will. The choice is this, they can partner with Yahweh Or just like us, they can choose to rebel and wage war against him. Sound familiar? I'm going to trust Yahweh's definition of good and evil and submit to his authority. Or I'm going to go out on my own and say, hey, this is what's right. And this is what's wrong. And I'm in charge here. So this applies to spiritual beings as well. So some spiritual beings love their good creator, God. Others hate him with every fiber of their being. Some spiritual beings are good and others are pure evil and cruel. Thank you for listening. Your reward is you get to watch a brilliant video by The Bible Project. Okay, so we're going to dim the lights, and we're going to think about this a bit more. alongside the world as we know it. Right, and the biblical authors
1: are no exception. Yeah, for them, the spiritual realm is a different kind of realm than ours. And to highlight that difference, the Bible refers to God's faith as the sky or the heavens. Because the sky is really different from the land. It's above and beyond. And up there are shiny bodies that move around. I think of these as flaming gas balls. But when the biblical authors looked up, the stars gave them a way to talk and think about spiritual beings. In the bible they're called the sons of god or the rulers and authorities or even sometimes the divine council so that sounds really important what does the divine council be well they're introduced in genesis chapter one where they're called the host of heaven that is the sun moon and stars and there they're also called signs meaning that their power and status symbolizes and points to god's power and status yeah so in genesis 1 god appoints them to rule over the day and night exactly And then later in the Bible, we're told that they were celebrating God's power and creativity when he created the world. Like the cheering section of a game. Yeah, right. There are also stories in the Bible where God invites the divine council to participate in making a decision. Like when they help decide how to bring down the corrupt Israelite King Ahab. Or in the book of Job, where they debate God's policy of rewarding people who do good. So they're like God's staff team. but. Why does god need a team if he's powerful enough to create the whole universe he could surely rule it without any help well he doesn't need them but apparently the god of the bible wants to share authority with others oh right god shares his rule with human partners on earth and so in the same way there's a parallel story of god sharing his authority to rule with spiritual partners yes that is until it all falls apart in a twin rebellion So you have humans who want to rule on earth on their own terms. So they start building their own nation using their own definitions of good and evil. Yeah, the famous story of the building of Babylon. But check this out. When biblical authors like Moses or Isaiah looked back at the origins of Babylon, they saw more than just a human rebellion, but also a spiritual rebellion. What was this spiritual rebellion? Well, there were members of the divine council who, like the humans, didn't want to represent God's authority anymore they wanted to be God, they rebelled. And so these created beings deceived humans into worshiping them instead of the creator. And so Babylon becomes the biblical image for the combined human and spiritual rebellion. And so God scatters the people from Babylon into different nations. And in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says, this is when God also scattered the rebels of the divine council. So the nations are handed over to spiritual rulers yes and this is why when the biblical prophets look out at the violent empires of their day they see two dimensions to all the chaos and injustice human rebels who are being corrupted by the worship of spiritual rebels the idol gods of money sex and military power yeah when humans give their allegiance to these powers it leads to a world like ours. right and the best example of this is the story of the exodus where we're told that the Egyptian genocide of the Israelites was inspired by Pharaoh and by the gods of Egypt. That's But it's not the end of the story. When God rescued the Israelites from Egypt and its gods, he invited them to become his covenant partners and learn a different way of ruling the world. And they agree to it, but in the end, they don't honor the partnership. They give their allegiance to other gods. And so this leads to their exile in Babylon, where they become slaves once again to a foreign nation and their spiritual rulers, awaiting a new exodus into freedom. And this is where the story of Jesus picks up. He said he was here to rescue the world and take it back from the rebels. Which rebels? The human ones or the spiritual ones? Exactly. For Jesus, it was all connected. When he marched into Jerusalem for Passover, He was announcing the ultimate exodus. He was there to confront and overcome all rebel powers and authorities, and he did it by giving up his life. So this is what the Apostle Paul meant when he said that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities, triumphing over them by the promise. Yes, Jesus condemned our evil by allowing the rebels to unleash all their hate and evil on him. But then he overcame it with the power of his love and resurrection life. And then Jesus told his followers that all authority in heaven and earth now belongs to him. The ultimate human and divine partner. This is really good news. Yeah, and it's why the apostles started inviting everyone to give their allegiance to the risen Jesus. To discover freedom and a new way to be human. Now while Jesus gained a decisive victory over the rebel powers, he didn't destroy them. They're still around, causing problems. Yes, and in fact, they are the problems. The Apostle said that humanity's real enemy is never another human. Rather, it's the spiritual powers that animate our cultural idols that inspire hatred, division, and violence. That's uh, so when I see people, I mean, other people, behind it is the divine counsel gone rogue. How do we deal with this kind of enemy? Well, the Apostle Paul said we can resist by putting on the character traits of Jesus, like our faithfulness, justice, and peace and he said that our only weapon is the word of God that is the biblical story of good news that Jesus has overcome all rebels with the divine power of his life love
0: you guys have your bibles let's open to psalm 82 Again, we're trying to think about what what story was Jesus living out of? How did he understand spiritual warfare? So I'm going to read Psalm 82 for us, and then I'm going to kind of talk us through it, and hopefully this will help land this point. So just again in summary, Yahweh is an Elohim, but he is the supreme Elohim above all other created Elohim. And he wants to share that authority like we were just watching in that video. But there was a rebellion. And how does this play out? So God stands in the divine assembly, Yahweh that is. And he pronounces judgment among the lowercase g gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So this is him speaking to the lowercase g gods. So God, Yahweh Elohim, is pronouncing judgment among the Elohim. He is addressing the rebels here, the spiritual beings who are working to undermine his good and beautiful creation. Yahweh, we see, is the one in authority here. He is the one speaking to the little g, gods. So he goes on, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, provide justice for the needy and the fatherless, uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute, rescue the poor and needy, save them from the power of the wicked? The gods see our doing in They're unleashing disaster and chaos all over God's good creation. And it appears to be that Yahweh is saying, hey, enough, stop it, knock it off. No more violence, no more murder, no more genocide, no more rape, no more famine, no more drought, no more disease and death, quit it. He goes on, they do not know or understand. They wander in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. This is what he says to them. I said, you are gods, lowercase g. You are all sons of the Most High. However, you will die like humans and fall like any other ruler. You're done. You're going down. Greg Boyd puts it this way. The kingdom is not of this world and neither is its warfare. Jews had always believed that God confronted spiritual opposition in carrying out, carrying out his will on earth. In the Old Testament, these evil forces were usually depicted as cosmic monsters and hostile waters that threatened the earth. And for a variety of reasons, this belief in spiritual warfare intensified significantly, significantly in the two centuries leading up to Jesus. This intensified understanding of evil and the, this new view of history is commonly referred to as the apocalyptic worldview. The authority ascribed to Satan in the New Testament, the frequent depictions of illness and deformities as demonically caused, and the general characterization of this present epoch as evil and as approaching its end all reflect this worldview. We find references to Satan, rulers, principalities, powers, and authorities, along with dominions, cosmic powers, thrones, spiritual forces, elemental spirits of the universe, gods, and another of other spiritual entities. For short, I'll just call them powers, he says. Understanding this worldview helps us see that Jesus's radically countercultural ministry wasn't first and foremost a form of social and political protest, though it certainly was that, listen to this, it was rather most fundamentally a form of spiritual warfare. So the psalm ends here. This was written hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. Rise up, Yahweh, judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. In other words, Yahweh, please do something about this issue. Please end this war. Bring an end to this battle. Help us and deliver us. We can see where this is going, any of us who've been in this church for a while. The answer and solution is Jesus. So Jesus Christ is the embodiment of Yahweh. He is God with skin on. He is God come to us. And he, my friends, I'd like to suggest, is the answer to the Psalm 82 prayer. John puts it this way. The reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. And what are Satan's works exactly? Let me just briefly say this. Morally, he entices us to sin. Physically, he inflicts disease and death. Intellectually, he seduces us into error. Socially, he provokes hatred and chaos. Politically and economically, he produces injustice and oppression. And spiritually, he binds the minds of unbelievers, lest they believe the good news of the gospel. All works worthy of destruction. In other words, another way that one of the New Testament writers puts it is this. uh, The weapons of warfare are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so Satan speaks to us lies. He speaks deceitful ideas which play off our disordered desires, which are normalized in our sinful society. And while he does this, he employs shame, condemnation, and continual lies to keep us trapped and captive, to keep us from reaching our full potential as followers of Jesus, as partners in his mission to reunite heaven and earth. The Gospel writer Luke says this, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And what did he do? He went around doing good, and healing all who are under the power of the devil. Mark, a man of few words, he traveled throughout Galilee, preached in their synagogues, and dro- drove out demons. <laughs> Straight to the point. What we read here is that Jesus is coming to do something about the mess the little G gods have made. He's coming to establish the kingdom of God in the midst of a war-torn creation. So this all is the backdrop of this story that we're going to read again together about Jesus and some pigs. What is going on here? You guys okay? So let's read this again. When he had come to the other side, to the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him as they came out of the tombs. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they shouted, What do you have to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And a long way off from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. If you drive us out, the demons begged him, please send us into that herd of pigs. Go, he told them. So when they had come out, they entered the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the water. Then the men who tended them fled. They went into the city and reported everything, especially what had happened to those who were demon-possessed. At that the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region." What is going on here? This is one of the strangest stories in the Gospels. Jesus is going out into all the world. So what we see here, he's crossed over to the other side. He has left the land of the Jews and is beginning his confrontation with the powers in the land of the Gentiles. Some would suggest that the storm that came up on the lake from last week's text was a form of spiritual warfare, that creation itself has been corrupted in the cosmic rebellion against Yahweh and his kingdom, and that it was doing everything it could to keep Jesus from spreading the good news of the gospel. The point here is that there is opposition in this world against the kingdom of God, that there is a a real war going on. When Jesus does finally arrive after calming the storm and helping his troubled disciples, He's greeted by two very troubled souls. These men, we read, have been driven out from their town and are living in the tombs. This is an unclean place for unclean people. They are demon-possessed, which means they are under the control or being lived by the demonic, fallen Elohim, those in rebellion against Yahweh's good rule and reign. Okay, so really quickly here. The Bible makes it clear that each human being all of us are image bearers of God, is either owned by Satan or by God. So in other words, each of us is either possessed by God or possessed by Satan. And what this means for us in this room who are followers of Jesus, is that it is impossible for a Christian to be possessed by Satan. Okay, so when God brings you into his kingdom, you are possessed or owned by him. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says this, You were bought with a price. You are bought out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. We've been transferred from the kingdom, or from one kingdom to the other. So let me just be clear about this. It is, however, possible for Christians to experience demonic oppression, interference, meddling, or being acted upon by the demonic forces. So it's simple as possible, Christians can't be demonically possessed but they can be demonically oppressed. Check. This story uh, uh, about the, 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 the Gadarene demoniacs is the story in the other gospels where they talk about the, le- they, Jesus asked them to name themselves, the demons, and they say that we're called legion. The legion of demons, that what they do in the story, we, we see that they recognize Jesus for who he is rather quickly here. He shows up on the scene and they're like, oh my gosh, he's here. What's going on? You guys ever have a boss where you have a similar feeling? Like, oh, I, you pretend you're back at work or whatever? And what we read is they they know how the story ends. They, they remember what, what what Yahweh declares in Psalm 82. Hey, listen, your, your days are going to come to an end. You're going to die like humans die. You're going to be done. You're going to be thrown into the abyss. And so they're, all, they're like anxious about this. They begin to voice their anticipation of the end, which happens to stretch all the way back beyond that Psalm 82 to the beginning of the story, where Yahweh promises in the garden that there's gonna be one who's going to come to stamp out this rebellion once and for all. Their destruction awaits them at Judgment Day, and they're like, man, today's not the day. Like, we've got some more chaos to wreak, Jesus. What are you doing here? And this is so weird, and I have no answers to this. I'm just gonna comment on this. They cut a deal with Jesus. We know you're here to set this guy free, Jesus, but if you're gonna do that, can you at least send us into a new host, they say. This is so strange. And more strange is that Jesus grants their request. So with one word, we see the authority of Jesus here. These spiritual beings who have been wreaking such havoc in these men's lives, they're they're gone. Go, he says. In Jesus' time, we read that there were exorcists who would work in quite complicated formulas for subduing a demon, often themselves being the hero. But, But for Jesus, it was just one word, go. And they went. This speaks of the authority of Yahweh, which is embodied in the Son, Jesus Christ. There is one supreme creator, Elohim, who stands above all other created Elohim. And what happens next proves a standing theory of mine. Animals can be possessed by the demonic. Just think about it. Namely cats. No, I'm just kidding, huh? Comic relief in the midst of a, but what a gory and strange scene. 2,000 pigs, it says, in one of the other gospel accounts, gurgling and drowning in a sea. We see in this narrative a picture of the kingdom of God, setting the captives free, dealing justice to the enemy, and the kingdom of darkness, which is to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Jesus set the demoniacs free. He brought them back into their right minds and he delivered them. The story goes on. The townspeople come out to see what the heck is going on. Why are there 2,000 pigs drowning in the sea, they may have said. And this could be for, they don't seem too happy about what's gone down. And this could be for a variety of reasons. We know that Jesus is in Gentile territory, which is predominantly a pagan region. And they would most likely have seen Jesus's act as an act of sorcery. And on top of that, it would appear that their main source of income was now floating to the bottom of this sea or drowning in the water. So in short, it's hard to trust a sorcerer who just ruined your livelihood. Moral of the day. (laughs) In other accounts of this story, we read that Jesus tells the demoniac who is now in his right mind, it's so beautiful, that he should go and tell others about what God has done for him today. The kingdom of God breaks into the kingdom of darkness. Jesus is working to get the hell out of earth. Greg Boyd again. This apocalyptic context makes it clear that Jesus' deliverance ministry was not the only way Jesus confronted evil. Every aspect of the kingdom of God Jesus manifested revolted against a corresponding aspect of the kingdom of the powers. And Jesus, and in the movement he came to establish, the long-expected apocalyptic battle between God and the powers was... And still is being waged. Now I close. Again, we are at war. Yahweh has been at this war with the spiritual powers for thousands of years. And in the middle of the battle, Jesus Christ is God come to us. He is here to do something most definite in our battle against the principalities and the powers. He, my friends, has come to set the captives free, to deliver us from sin, Satan, death, and hell, to lead us out of bondage and into the promised land of union and communion with God and his people. This is our destiny, this is his design, and this is his desire. We have to own this. We too have made a mess of God's good creation. We have, in our own ways, rebelled against God's kingdom, insisting that our kingdom is better our definitions of good and evil are superior. The reality is this, every one of us in this room have all sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. We've not lived up to our design, and we have left a trail of mess behind us. But this is not the end of the story. Jesus exacts justice in a most surprising way. Sacrificial love, self-giving love, He absorbs into himself all of the wages of sin, all the death, destruction, brokenness, ugliness, sinfulness of our rebellion into his very person, into himself. The way out of this cosmic ruin would cost him everything, a cost he was willing to pay. And for a moment, it looked like the enemy had won as Jesus hung limp on a Roman cross, the life out of his body. But that's not the end of the story. Three days later, the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. His resurrection deals a fatal blow. Sacrificial love has won the day. Paul the Apostle says it this this way, that in this act, Jesus has disarmed the power and authorities, having made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the power of the cross. Jesus is victorious, or in Latin, Christus victor. This is the decisive blow to the cross, Jesus defeated Satan and the other spiritual rebels and death itself. Hallelujah, he is king. He has all authority and power, spiritual and physical. This we see as he calms the seas and commands the demons so as to calm the oppressed. Forgiveness for sins, freedom from condemnation, destruction of death itself, liberty for the captives, all given at the cost of Jesus's life. But he shares this reward with you and I. This is a gift shared with us by a God so rich in mercy. This is a gift from God, a gift of grace, the kindness of God. God has done some definite thing in man. He has forgiven us our sin. The cross has the final word. One writer goes on to say it this way. What D-Day was to World War II, Jesus' death and resurrection were in the war against the evil powers for those of you who are a little fuzzy on your american history d-day was the day the allies retook the beaches of france so by the next morning hitler and the nazi regime were done they had no chance of winning but it was followed by a full year of bloody ghastly fighting from the beaches of normandy to center to the center of britain we live in between d-day and ve day between Jesus' first coming to land the decisive blow and his second coming to end evil for good. We exist in a bloody war. But here's the good news. While we wait, we must remember that we are on the winning side. That yes, we have a real enemy, but greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. That we we were brought into a fight, as it were, but that our weapons are prayer and putting on the nature and character of Jesus, that we are to take up our cross daily as we lay down our lives for other people, living from a place of acceptance and love, of our hiddenness in Christ, joining in his campaign to get the hell out of earth. We pray and say, and this is on our website, and we think about this, in Alliston as it is in heaven. We pray this as a cry that Jesus' victory on the cross would be made manifest in every aspect of life here. Morally, physically, intellectually, politically, and economically, and spiritually. His kingdom of self-giving, self-sacrificial love. And all the while remembering that this is his kingdom to bring. He brings it, we uncover it. We marvel, we worship, we thank, we pray. So while we wait, in between D-Day and V-E-Day, we remember the grace of God, His undying, unearned, undeserved, unwavering, one-way love for His creation. That we could never rescue ourselves from the mess of this war, but that He instead came down to us and pulled us out of the wreckage, the darkness, the mess, and into His marvelous light. All the while, we dare to believe that even on our worst day, Jesus is still crazy about us. I declare this as we close. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. Christus Victor. To him be the glory and honor and power throughout the generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Hey, John, you want to come lead us in one more song? As we close, guys, thank you for listening. Pray your hearts were stirred. By the good news of our victorious Jesus. I want us to stand. I want us just to pray the Lord's Prayer as we end. And then we're going to sing a song and then um, we'll go from there. So the words will be on the screen. This is the prayer Jesus taught his disciples when they asked him to teach us how to pray, Lord. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen.